0: The following audio is brought to you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at emmanueltuscaloosa.org. Um. So, let's just kind of orient ourselves in what we've been talking about up to this point. Uh, so, we've been going for a long time through the Old Testament. It's been several years now that we've been in the Old Testament on Wednesday night, and. All of God's people, obviously, have been pulled out of Egypt, have gone and established a kingdom, have had kings and kings and kings, have gone into idolatry and all kinds of sin, and eventually God brings them to a point of punishment where He sends them into exile. And we've seen where the exile that they went into in Babylon was really for their good, and now He's bringing them back into the land, and there's all kinds of promises that have been given to them. They've gone for a long time without uh, a temple, the temple has been destroyed by Babylon when they, come in, when they came in and, and took them into captivity in the first place. And so everything that they have, everything that they have is completely decimated. And so God has now brought them back and he has told them to begin building the temple again. And he sent prophet after prophet to come to them. And so we've been opening the book of Zechariah, which is one more prophet that's coming to the people of Israel, telling them to build this temple again. Um, and so, as Zechariah is kind of known for, it, it, it's very a very difficult book to understand. And so, tonight we're going to do something a little bit different. Let me review what we did last week, which is, which is to say that a couple months after Haggai, the prophet, came in and, and first told um, the people to start building, Zechariah comes in and he tells them, look, you can build all you want. You can build the temple all you want. You can get to started which you need to. You can do all that all you want. But unless there is actual repentance of sin, it doesn't matter. So the message of Zechariah, Haggai's message is build the temple. Zechariah's message is repent of your sin because otherwise it doesn't matter. And what we do know is that in all the prophets' messages, every time there is a message of repentance, there is also the promise that, look, if you repent, he is faithful and just and will forgive you of your sin and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. We see that in the New Testament and the Old Testament. And so Zechariah is pushing them to build the the house of worship and call for repentance. But then Zechariah goes into the first six chapters, which is the hardest part of the whole book to understand, which are these eight visions And we're not going to spend tons of time on the visions themselves, uh, though we did look at a a couple of them uh, last time. But the visions in Zechariah kind of unveil uh, a, a little bit deeper message that's coming from the book itself. There is a feeling on the front side, at the beginning of the visions, that, look, the world is at peace and all the evil people have control over everything, and God is not going to do anything about it. That's the feeling at the very beginning of the book. But then everything begins to change in right in the middle of Zechariah's visions, in chapters 3 and 4, where we start to realize that he's actually prepared two people, uh, Zerubbabel the king and uh, Joshua, or Joshua the high priest, to essentially restore faithfulness in Israel in preaching the word and teaching the word and bringing about repentance in the people and and really urging them to Repent of their sin, but both of those two individuals are Temporary Obviously they're going to die, right? They're going into a grave and they're not going to be heard from again But eventually there is coming about a king and high priest who is going to actually take away the sins of his people so when he when Jesus dies on the cross That's precisely what he's doing, is taking away the sins of the people. And these two individuals, Zerubbabel, the king, and Joshua, the high priest, are essentially symbols. They're real people, but they're symbols of what Jesus is eventually going to do for his people in taking away their sins. All right, so the the message then in in those visions up front, as complicated as they are and as super difficult as they are to understand, is really pretty simple that God is, not, is totally aware of all the evil people that rule the world, or that think they rule the world. That he hasn't fallen asleep, he's not down on the job, or any of those kinds of things. That he's actively working, and he's going to put an end to sin and death and everything from, from here on out, but it's going to take a while to do. And he's on the move in doing that. So the book overall, uh, when we look at Zechariah as a whole, is about God's plan to restore Israel from spiritual exile. So they've come back out of the land, they've come back from captivity to Babylon, but there's a difference in being out of physical exile and being out of spiritual exile. Even though you've been away for a long time, involved in everything that Babylon's involved in, it takes a while to actually get the Babylon out of you, right? So it's going to be 500 years or more before that happens. So, tonight, what we're going to look at is some parts of Zechariah on the, the back end of Zechariah, but then also I want us to think about how do we actually even begin to understand these harder parts of the Bible and, and really begin to unpack those and how they tie into the New Testament. Okay? So, when we attempt to understand, Biblical prophecy, which is the section of Scripture that we're in. The last half of the Old Testament is prophecy. And there's no getting around it. If you ever read it, you get really lost. You know, you get buried in the weeds because you're like, I have no idea what any of this has to do with me at all because it, it, everything's confusing, right? And so when we attempt to understand it, whether we're in the Old Testament or the New Testament, two factors complicate our interpretation. One is terminology that's being used. And the second is timing, okay? Terminology and timing. We get into the, the weeds of biblical prophecy, and the fir- one of the questions that we start having in our minds is, what does he mean by that? What does he mean by that? Terminology. But then the second is, okay, when are we talking about? When is he, he talking, what time period is he talking about here, right? So it's, it's terminology and timing. Terminology is important because we have to be able to clearly answer the question, what are we talking about? What is the subject matter? When he says this word, what does he mean by that? And timing is important because we all want to answer the question, when are we talking about? What are we talking about? And when are we talking about? If you've ever read through the book of Revelation, anybody read through it? Okay. Studied it verse by verse? studied it maybe in a high-level overview, chapter by chapter, okay? So you've been through it. How many of you at at some point in your reading through Revelation have gone, okay, when are we talking about here? Right? When is this this happening? And then how many of you have gone through, wait, are we talking about a real dragon? What does he mean by dragon? All right? What does he mean by these lion-headed, gas-whispering, snake-tailed beast coming out of the bottomless pit. What in the world is that all about, right? So it's it's a, there's an issue of terminology, there is an issue of timing that we really have to begin to think through, and especially when we get into the Old Testament, it gets even more complicated, because when we get there in the Old Testament, we're super confused by just the historical setting that we're in. I don't even understand what Israel's, what's happening to Israel right now. So, all of those things, I think, are, are really challenging for us, and so the key to answering all of those questions, particularly in the Old Testament, is to pay close attention, first of all, to the text itself, as confusing as it, it may be, and then investigate when and where these concepts are revisited by New Testament authors. So, we have talked about a number of times in here. I've talked about it on Sunday morning before. There is this idea under this, uh, this, uh, discipline of biblical theology. Now, many of us are used to systematic theology, or we've at least heard the term before. Systematic theology is where you take a topic like, uh, God's holiness, and you see where the Bible mentions God's holiness, and you kind of From all of the mentions of God's holiness, you can kind of put together a a general idea of what the Bible is talking about when it says God is holy. Uh, And you can do that with lots of different topics. In those systematic theology books that you can get, that's what they do, is they start at one place, and they work through all of the concepts that you could possibly ever think of, and they kind of cite where all of this is mentioned, and it gives us a better picture to understand that particular topic. That's systematic theology. Biblical theology is different. Biblical theology is taking a theme that happens in the Bible and tracing it through all the way through the pages of Scripture. So, for instance, you get uh, you, you have the Garden of Eden at the beginning. This is the, probably the easiest one. And the serpent that crawls into the Garden of Eden, this unclean serpent that talks and all of this kind of stuff and tempts Adam and Eve to sin. And by right there after they sin god tells the man and woman first of all he, he remo- he's going to remove them from the garden and then he tells the man and woman there's one coming who is going to essentially crush the head of the serpent he's going to strike his heel but then he'll crush your head right so you immediately get this this theme here of uh, uh, someone doing battle with a serpent And this weaving its way throughout Scripture and then this whole Garden of Eden imagery where the people are being removed from the Garden of Eden. And we know the idea is they want to get back to the Garden of Eden. That's that's the goal. Right. And so the whole time throughout the Old Testament, we're seeing they know that this seed is coming and they're tracing the genealogies, all those, you know, just endless genealogies you get in the Old Testament is all about Israel going, who is that Messiah who is coming? And then eventually you start to get King David, and, or Abraham first, and then King David, and it's God whittling down the whole nation of Israel to, to demonstrate exactly where that Savior is coming from. And so they begin tracing the genealogy all the way through until we get into Matthew, and we see that genealogy come to fruition. So when we see that genealogy at the very beginning of Matthew... It's really a theme that's been opened up all the way from the beginning of this one that's gonna come to do battle with the devil himself. Well, when you get finally to the end of the Bible in Revelation, there is Jesus sitting on the throne and John's description of everything around him is a Garden of Eden picture. And there all the people that Jesus has saved are there with him in that Garden picture and Satan is cast out forever. And he'll never be in again. And so no unclean thing will ever enter this Garden of Eden ever again, right? Does that make sense? So biblical theology is tracing that theme all the way through Scripture and seeing how it unfolds over time. All right, so essentially what we're looking at tonight is really thinking through, not only do I want to understand the prophecy in the Old Testament, but then I want to Do do careful diligence to look into the New Testament, know both my Old Testament and my New Testament, and see where New Testament authors are referring back to the things that are mentioned here in the Old Testament. You tracking with me so far? I'm going good so far? Okay. So, there are two terms that we're going to wrestle with tonight that uh, I want us to to think about. And they occur quite a bit in the Old Testament, especially in the Prophets. And the two terms are Jerusalem and Zion. Jerusalem and Zion. And uh, both of these terms are locations, essentially. Jerusalem is obviously a city, right? City in Judea. It's capital city of Israel. What is Zion? Okay, Mount Zion in Jerusalem, what is it? Okay, the location of the king. More importantly than the location of merely the king, there's a building that sits there on Mount Zion Temple. So, um, these two locations are actually really important. Obviously, you have the capital city, but then Zion is where the temple actually sits. What happens at the temple? What is it? Well, it was torn down, but what happens at the temple? What? What? Yeah, torn down and rebuilt, but what happens there? Worship. Yeah, worship of God happens there. So essentially, the way Israel is thinking about this temple is that it is a it is a point on earth, the only point on earth where God actually meets with mankind. Right. So it's a really important place. Okay, to say the least, it's a very important place. All right. So more importantly. Whenever the Old Testament prophets talk about Jerusalem and Zion, they are the places where when the Messiah comes, he will start doing his work there. And he will call everybody to that place. Okay? So, if you think about it, it makes sense. This is the place where we meet with God. Our temple has been torn down. Well, when the Messiah comes who is going to be the king, what is he going to do? Well, he's going to call, he's going to, first of all, his temple's going to be rebuilt, and then he's going to call everybody back to Jerusalem and back to Mount Zion, and we're really going to get down to worshiping God there, because that's where God meets with mankind, okay? So Jerusalem and Mount Zion are tremendously important, and it's the place where the Messiah is going to begin his ministry if you read the Old Testament. So look at this. It says, I'm going to get it where I can draw on it here. Um, the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy. I'm jealous for her with great wrath. Jealousy and wrath. Uh, Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. City, uh, so city is here and temple is here. And Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city. And the mountain of the Lord of hosts. That would be Zion right there, the mountain. uh, The holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of great age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, If it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country. What would be the east country? Exile, right? I'm going to save my people. And he's not necessarily talking about physical exile only. He's talking about spiritual exile that they're in. I will save my people from the east and west, the people that have been banished out of the country altogether. And I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. So what is he describing here? What sort of... What sort of life is this that he's describing? What is it? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really pretty picture, for sure, of a time period where Jerusalem and Zion are restored to worship of God, but then people are actually brought back and, and super old they get. Super old, right? They don't, they don't die in young age. They're super old here. Right, sitting around with their staffs in their hands and things like this. Okay. Thus says the Lord of hosts, this is verse 20, Thus says the Lord of hosts, People shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. <laughs> come with me. So what are they doing? They're going to say, let's go worship the Lord together. And people are wanting to go. This is what God is promising will happen again in this area and through these people. Many people and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem. Again, There, in Jerusalem. And to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, let us go with you for we have heard that God is with you. So this is even being evangelized abroad to many nations where people are coming because they want to to the Lord, coming to worship the Lord genuinely in truth. Right? So what's being described here is a, a really pretty picture of the restoration of Jerusalem and Zion, at least on the surface. That's what it seems to be in the prophets. And we know that that even fits in the the context of Zechariah, doesn't it? Because Zechariah is obviously wanting them to build the temple, and essentially he's giving them a picture of what will happen in the event that you actually build the temple. Not only will worship be restored, uh, worship of God be restored to his people, but this will be broadcast far and wide, and many people will want to come to the Lord. Okay. So far, so good? Um, so, while the two terms are uh, Jerusalem and Zion are sometimes used interchangeably in the Old Testament, um, and we'll see this in just a second in 2 Samuel, typically, Mount Zion refers to sp- specifically to a mountain or mountain range within the city on which the temple sat. Very, te- If we're getting really technical about it, Mount Moriah is where the temple sat, and Mount Zion is just south of that. But it kind of refers to the whole range. And eventually, it all just became known as Mount Zion. Uh, you won't really see it in the Old Testament referred to as Mount Moriah anymore. But look at this. So, uh, two places where this is, where the, where this is called out, and not only two, but to, of, of the two. Uh, sometimes they're used interchangeably. It says, And the king and his men went to Jerusalem. This is uh, David in 2 Samuel the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, you will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. So we have it called referred to Jer- as Jerusalem, as the city of David, and to Zion. So Zion kind of became known as the kind of the whole place, right? And specifically, that's where David went up. But then he says, behold, I and the uh, "...and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion." So you can see what is the importance of Mount Zion. What's the function of Mount Zion? And why is it important? It is where God is. That is where He dwells. So if you want to meet with God, you need to go to Mount Zion is the point, right? Right? Here's, this is the hardest thing, I think, for, for us to wrap our minds around in a New Testament setting. Okay? We believe, as Christians, Jesus has come. We believe, as Christians, if we believe in Him, we have forgiveness of sin. If we believe in Him and His resurrection of the dead, His death for us on our behalf, then we have forgiveness of sin. And if that is the case... His Spirit dwells within us, and wherever we go, there is the temple of God. We don't need a building. We, as His people, are a walking presence of the living God, right? Because He dwells within us. Conviction of sin, testify to Christ, all of those things are given to us by virtue of the fact that the Spirit dwells within us. That's what we believe. So it's hard for us to wrap our minds around an idea that God would be at a centralized location. That does not make sense to us in any way, shape, or form. It does, it, 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 you know. When people say, uh, "Well, you got to come into church because, well, that's the house of God," right? Like you'll hear people say that sometimes, and it's it's kind of a foreign concept for a Christian to say that, right? Because it's, that's not really true. We're coming together as Christ's body to worship and to study the Word and things like that, but. The, we, as individuals, are the temple of the living God. He doesn't live in a building built by hands. Okay, That's not what this place is. And so that, that's a really foreign concept for us to wrap our minds around. But Mount Zion in the Old Testament, for a, a, an Old Testament Jew, there is no way, there's no concept that God could ever, ever dwell with His people or meet with his people if it wasn't at a centralized location. You get that? Yeah. It's the only category for meeting and worshiping God. For us, that doesn't make sense. For an old testament person, what we live in doesn't make sense. Right? We we don't need a building. They have to have a building. Like it, it's two, you're almost speaking two different languages when you think about it like that. So uh, so Mount Zion and Jerusalem for the Lord to come back for the Messiah to come and say to his people if the Messiah is going to be sent by God if he's going to be a king he's got to be there in Jerusalem and he's got to live on Mount Zion because that is the place where God meets with man period okay you get it alright um what Yes, ish, yeah, somewhat, yeah. Right. No, it's not necessarily a foreign concept for many other religions. It's a foreign concept for us, is what I'm saying, as we look back at the Old Testament. So, um, alright. So, once Israel is told about her exile from the land as a result of God's punishment, her eventual restoration to Jerusalem, and specifically the Messiah's ministry at Mount Zion, is of paramount, paramount importance. So, uh, once the temple has been torn down and they're in exile if there's ever a time where god is going to ever save his people they have to get back to the land and begin doing the restoring process right so you tracking if if that is what's necessary for god to meet with man then we have to prepare the way so they think we have to prepare the way and and their own their mind is only physical, right? Not, not that they're not thinking about the worship and the spiritual aspect of that, but they're only thinking, well, if God's going to meet with us, then we have to have a building, and we have to have restoration, we have to have all these things. They don't realize yet that it's not really going to come about that way, right? That all of these things are helping to prepare the way for Christ. Okay, so... Um, All right, so look at this. Uh, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now you recognize that verse? So for them, they hear that verse and they think, The king is coming, and he needs a temple to dwell in, and a place to be. We must restore Jerusalem and Zion. That's where the king lives. But you hear that verse, and your mind immediately goes to Matthew, where what's happening? Do you remember where that verse gets cited in Matthew? Jesus is entering the city on the back of a colt, the foal of a donkey. He comes into town. And the people are praising him, saying, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So they're hailing him as king, right? And, and here he comes into town riding on a donkey. Now, they have their temple. But do they have, do they really have their temple? It's not really owned by them, is it? It's owned by Rome. They have their city. But it's not really owned by them is it it's owned by rome so what is the messiah now got to do when he walks into the city according to them get him out of here you got to get rome out of here so when he rises from the dead even in the beginning of acts and he's standing there in front of his disciples they say okay you they killed you you got up from the dead now, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? <laughs> so when do we get the Romans out of here? Right? Because we know that has to happen. They still don't understand the concept of salvation. They still don't understand how that's working. Right? What Jesus' resurrection from the dead actually does. Okay. Um, let me figure out where I am. All right. I think I got it. Um, so, here, so we get Zechariah again saying, or, sorry, this is Isaiah. Isaiah 2, verses 2-4. to four. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established. Okay, what does that sound like? Zion? Sounds like the temple on top of Zion? The mountain of the house of the Lord is going to be established. He's going to build it. Okay. As the highest of the mountains... And shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. That sounds like what we were just reading a minute ago, doesn't it, out of Zechariah? They're all going to start coming to it? Okay, flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of God, the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. So the Messiah is going to come. He's going to establish his kingdom right there on Mount Zion in the temple. Everybody's going to stream to it, and they're going to go teach us, King, Messiah, tell us, give us information so that we can walk in your ways. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. All right, so we got Zion and Jerusalem are going to be the cities where all of that streams, right? He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. What does that sound like? Got an idea? What, what does that sound like? No. Okay, If we're, we just watch. It's right here. Spears. What are spears used for? War. Pruning hooks, what do they use for? What is it? Agriculture, trimming vines, harvesting fruit. Nations shall not lift up what is this? Sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So what is this what is he describing? Peace. Peace for whom? Yeah. Uh, all the nations shall flow to it. That's messy. All the nations shall flow to you. Okay. So immediately, your mind goes to what Becky just said was millennial reign. Immediately, your mind goes to apocalypse. This is is still our future, right? Immediately does. Um, And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just saying that's where our mind immediately goes. But notice who is experiencing this time of peace. The nations that flow to it. Um, And those nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. They seems to be these nations that are flowing in. Therefore, uh, he says, so the the point is the Messiah's ministry in the Old Testament is we're reading through the prophets. Well, it's right there in Jerusalem. It's right there on Mount Zion. And Lo and behold, look, this is what we've got, right? We've got nations streaming into the Messiah, learning His ways. He's teaching them. They're putting down their swords. They're putting down all their spears. They're not going to battle anymore. They're at peace. And instead, and proof of their peacetime is they've changed all those out, and now they're using pruning hooks, and they're they're reaping a harvest. They're, they're bringing in fruit. They're not... They're not going to battle anymore, okay? He says, therefore, justice is far from us. This, uh, this is Isaiah 59, 9 to 10. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness and for, uh, and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope for those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon in the twilight among those with, uh, in full vigor. We are like dead men. And a Redeemer will come to Zion. I think I put down the wrong verse back there, sorry. And a (laughs) Redeemer, that's the way it goes, you know, when you're human. And a Redeemer will come to Zion. To those in Jacob who turn from transgression. Who does the Redeemer come to? To Zion. Who does he come to? To those who... Which is what I just read. You just reread it back to me. That's all I was asking for. <laughs> it's, pretty it's pretty easy. I'm giving softball questions. They're they're not I hope they're not hard. They're just read it back to me. To those who turn from transgression. So so again we're reiterating in the old testament, even in the prophets, who are the ones that are experiencing the blessed reign of the Messiah? Who are they? Come on now. Read it to me. I'm like starring it. I'm putting it I'm bolding it. I'm exclamation point. Okay. Uh, <laughs> who turn from transgression. So so you're immediate you're you're getting the sense that the Messiah's ministry is not just bringing nations into to but but people to it. And What's going to happen is that they're going to exchange all of their past deeds. They're going to lay them down. They're going to repent, turn from transgression, and they're going to have peace. Period. End of story. Right? Okay. So, in light of the prophet's message messages, the meanings of the term Jerusalem and Mount Zion started to take on more importance than merely physical locations. But with what we just read, they start to become symbols of hope and restoration. Right, So now Mount Zion is, and, and Jerusalem is packed with tons more meaning. Maybe before it was, this is a, a capital city of, of Judea, And Mount Zion, that is the place where the temple rests. But now the meaning that's even further emphasized is that, hey, this is the place where hope is going to be restored to the world. Right? This is the place where everybody is going to get tons of blessing. This is the, the place where everything changes. So hope restoration, all of these things start beginning to be packed into the meaning of, um, of Mount Zion and Jerusalem. But, but watch what happens when we get to the New Testament. All of a sudden there is, a, there is once Jesus ascends to heaven, ra- raises from the dead, uh, ascends to heaven, there is, um, like the lights go on people. And they start to realize maybe something more about the Old Testament teaching on Jerusalem and Mount Zion. Maybe what we're dealing with here is more than merely just a physical location. Maybe that's not what he meant by Jerusalem and Mount Zion. Okay, so we get this, we get some whispers of this first. In Galatians 4, 21 to 26 and Hebrews 12, 18 to 24, it seems that they take on this new meaning where they're shorthand descriptors of the kingdom of the Messiah and all of its citizens. So so now saying Zion and saying Jerusalem are not about a physical location that you go to where you get to the temple. But they are describing a nationhood, a citizenship of those who belong to a Messiah who is raised from the dead and is ascended into heaven. Who now, from where he sits, is not in a specified location, but is now overseeing it all. um, Maybe we don't think about this a lot. The ascension of Jesus. We talk about his death. We talk about his burial. We talk about his resurrection and the salvation that we have because of that. But we don't spend a ton of time talking about his ascension. What does the ascension of Jesus even mean? He ascended to the right hand of the Father. Okay, he's not here. That's, that's good, right? Right, yeah. But doesn't that leave us kind of going, well, great. We could really use him right about now, right? There's a whole bunch of people doing a whole bunch of things, and we could really use him right about now, and he's not here, all right? But what else does it, does it only just mean he's not here? Keep saying it, all authority. What were you going to say, Tommy? No. He's spiritually here. He says, Allah, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Okay, so there's a, he's at the right hand of the Father. David says, all authority. Explain, you want to flesh that out a little bit more? Right hand of God. Yeah, so he he, he doesn't say... He ascended to the left hand of God. Right? Isn't God everywhere? Does God have hands? He's, he's omnipotent. He's omnipresent. He's Okay, does He have hands? Physical hands. God is spirit. Jesus says God is spirit spirit. His people worship Him in spirit and truth. He doesn't have hands. So why does He say He ascended to the right hand of the Father? He doesn't have hands. It's a symbol of power and authority. So what he's saying when he ascended to heaven, to the right hand of the Father, he is right now overseeing it all. That's what he's meaning. That's the point of what he's saying. Okay? All right. So, he ascends to the right hand of the Father, and because he has ascended and he's overseeing it all, now Jerusalem and Mount Zion still are the places where Christ reigns, but they're not physical locations. They're, you might say, spiritual locations. But they're, they take on a new meaning. They mean everybody that's a citizen of Jerusalem, a citizen of Mount Zion, are people that live under the Messiah's ministry, His reign. In other words, people that have streamed to the location where the king is. Does that make sense? And repented, right? Okay. So it's describing a citizenry, a people, who are called by the name of Christ. So we get these two passages. Let's, let's look at a couple of these, just, just for kicks and grins. Okay. Uh, Galatians 4, 21-26. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law. This is Paul writing in the New Testament. Do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Okay? Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. Already you lost me, right? That's where we get to. We get to this point where like, what is he saying? All right, Abraham had two kids. One he tried to make happen, right? God had given him a promise and said, you're going to have a kid. And he was like, well, I got a way I can make that happen. Here's my servant. Here's the servant of Sarah. Sarah says, hey, why don't you take my servant? All right. And so he has one that he's sort of forced to happen. Okay. But then, there's another son that was born to him, Isaac. And that son is a son of promise. Right. Abraham believed God and was counted him as righteous. He promised him, you're going to have a son, and it's not going to be, it's not going to be that one. Okay. So, these, so now Paul is saying, let those... Serve as a, a way we can understand what God has done here. These women are rep- basically represent two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai. What covenant is that? The law, covenant of Moses, the Mosaic covenant, that's where God gave the law to people. He said, don't murder, don't da da da, don't da da da. And they did anyway, right? And, and if we had, we can look back there at the Old Testament and say, shame on you, but if we had been there, we would have done it too. Alright, he says, uh, and what did they, what happened there? They bore children for slavery. So Paul's making an argument, look, if you are born under the law, and you want to follow the law, then it's like uh, Hagar and her, her child, Ishmael, they are, it's, it's just children for slavery. It's not children of the promise. Alright, now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present to the present Jerusalem. So what is the present Jerusalem? What is that? When he says present Jerusalem, remember Paul writing to Galatians before the temple collapses, present Jerusalem represents all of the worship that goes there goes on there at Mount Zion on the physical hill at the physical temple where they worship in accordance with the law and they reject Jesus. Period. Right? Present Jerusalem. So, all of that is children of slavery. Okay? She's in slavery with her children, but Jeru- the Jerusalem above is free. What is that? What's the Jerusalem above? There's a Jerusalem up there? What is he talking about? He's talking about all of those who belong to Jesus. Jesus. So if you belong to Jesus, then there's not a law that's being followed. Now there is grace and freedom and confession of sin and repentance and forgiveness. That it's not according to your own merits. It's according to what Christ has done for you. And it's a trust that He is enough to forgive me of my sins. Okay, so it's free. And she is our mother. Okay, so He's saying there, we belong to that Jerusalem. There's a Jerusalem here. It's a real Jerusalem. It's a real Mount Zion. It has a real temple on it. We don't belong to that Jerusalem, and that's not where we're going. We're going to the Jerusalem that's up there. He's being metaphorical. There's not really a Jerusalem up there. We're going to the Lord. We're going to Christ. Right? Okay, now look at Hebrews 12, 18 to 24. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire. This is Mount Zion. Mount Mount. Mount Sinai, he's describing here. Uh, A blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose, uh, whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was that sight, was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Remember, he's describing Mount Sinai there, right? And Mount Sinai is this thunder that's going on, flashes of lightning, The people are terrified. And they even tell Moses, why don't you go up and tell us what God's saying, because if we hear it, we're going to die. And Moses is like, I'm, I'm scared. What are you talking about? I don't want to go up there either. So he says, look, that's not what you've come to. But you have come to, what did you come to? Mount Zion. Wait, the Mount Zion? No. And to the city of the living God. Again, Mount Zion and Jerusalem still represent the place where God dwells. But the place where God dwells is not an earthly place, it's not a physical location, right? The heavenly Jerusalem. And to. That was sloppy and to innumerable angels in festal festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks to a better word than the blood of Abel. What is he describing here? You 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 have come to Mount Zion. You have come to Jerusalem. But you've come to the real one. The real one is Jesus, right? So he, they're draw, the New Testament authors are now that once the lights have come on, Jesus ascends. oh, I get what he's saying. I get the purpose of Jerusalem and Mount Zion in the past was not to draw my attention to a physical location. It was to help me understand that this is where God dwells so that once Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father, Jerusalem and Mount Zion become the place where God dwells. And if I come to Him, and I come to Him truly in repentance, laying down my weapons of war, then I can take pruning hooks. Then I can truly be at peace under the reign of the Messiah, because I can have forgiveness of sin. Right? So what sounds like in some of the Old Testament prophets, well, this, is, this can only be a millennial reign that we're, we're looking at, is in fact not what he's primarily talking about. He's talking about the reign and the ministry of the Messiah himself. That's when repentance and forgiveness of sin is had. Right? That's when eternal life begins. Is now. It's important that the New Testament authors and Jesus himself reiterate you won't taste death as a Christian it's important that they remind you that those that are dead have fallen asleep. And the reason that that's important is because eternal life begins now. For those who are under the ministry of the Messiah, it starts now. you understand that? What has He created in His people but a people who are not at war with one another? Who represent people of all nations, languages, tribes, and tongues. And who come together not at war with one another, but building one another up, edifying one another, encouraging one another. Evermore as we see the day drawing near. Do you understand? What he has started, what, what, what was promised to us in the prophets, he has already started. It's already begun. Now, this is, this is the preface to the book. I get it, right? We hadn't seen everything. I'm not saying we've seen everything. But it's the it's the opening of the book of eternal life. Right? For those who are in Christ. Okay. This is confirmed then in Revelation when John equates the new heavens and the new earth to the holy city and the bride of Christ. A couple more verses here. He says, Then I saw a new heaven, and a new earth. This is John, end of Revelation. This is the end of 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 the end. Whatever you, whatever you think of when you go end of end of end of end of end, of, when it's all said and done, all right, everything's over, even as we see in a minute, the crying too is over. Right, It's all over. All right, New heaven and new earth. The first heaven and the first earth passed away. The sea was no more. And I saw the holy city. Now, maybe your inclination at first, read is to say new heaven and new earth and holy city are two different things. I don't think that's what John is saying. I think they're actually the same thing. I saw a new heaven and new earth, and I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. So if we saw in the the New Testament already, in Hebrews and in in, uh, Galatians, that the heavenly city is the place where Christ dwells on high and we go to him, right? Because we come to him in salvation. In salvation. That's, that's the process of coming to him. Now what's happening? He's coming down to us, right? And he's bringing him to us, okay? Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Who's that? That's the people, Right? Okay, so the the city of Jerusalem, or the new Jerusalem, Zion, where we dwell, is now coming to us, and since we dwell there, we should expect that we, the bride, would be coming to earth, right? When Paul says, um, the dead in Christ will rise 1st they he'll be transformed, then we who are alive be caught up with, I think this is the scene. I think that's what we're looking at. The dead in Christ are returning with Christ and everyone else is rejoicing too. A loud voice, there's that loud voice that we see so often from the throne. Behold, the dwelling place, which we already saw, Jerusalem uh, and new heaven and new earth, the dwelling place of God is now with man. So what is being depicted here by John is that new Jerusalem where Christ dwells, where all of his people... Once you die, your soul goes to be with Jesus, right? You're with him forever. Now it's coming down, and what is being depicted here is the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Okay, so to reiterate, you got all that. Put a, hold all that in your brain for just a second. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying so normally you get to verse 9 and you go just keep going okay just if you don't understand it just keep going till you get something you do alright spoke to me saying come I will show you what is he going to show you he's going to show you the bride and in case you didn't know what that means it's the wife of the lamb who is that no who is the bride of the wife the, the wife of the lamb okay All right, the church. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city of Jerusalem. What is that? What is the high mountain? And here's the holy city of Jerusalem. So, wait a second. He told me I was going to see the bride, and then bait and switch, he took me to see a mountain and a city they just might be the same thing that he's describing here. Coming down from heaven, from, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. So you understand, what we're, what we're looking at here is, in the Old Testament, when we read the prophets, there's so many layers to this coming to fruition that starts with the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. Your mind, as we've already seen, when you read those passages in the Old Testament, is to go straight to some time period in our future that we haven't seen yet. And the Old Testament prophets are going, no, stop at the cross and think about what Jesus has done. And the New Testament authors are going, look back at what Jesus has already done. He has already started this whole process. And, yes, there's more to come. There is a cascading effect, essentially, where this thing builds and builds and builds and gets bigger and bigger and bigger until not only have multitudes upon multitudes of people from all nations, languages, and tongues come streaming to Christ, begging for forgiveness of sin, which He grants, but then eventually it comes to the point where Christ... Returns to Earth and occupies the entire world with his people, which is the city of Jerusalem. Is it a physical location? Well, no. That's not what he's talking about. That's a stand-in for God's presence with His people, just like what it meant in the Old Testament. Okay, all right. So, n- second part. This is gonna be really fast. Okay. So we we talked about the the first bit of what we were looking at the terminology, Israel, Zion, Jerusalem, Zion. Now, as to the timing, the Old Testament prophets describe circumstances and effects of the Messiah's ministry as if they occur at the same time. However, the New Testament makes clear that the inauguration and fulfillment of the Messiah's ministry will be separated by a considerable amount of time. I want to I want to show this, you know what? No, let me illustrate this first. Uh, I, I I've used this illustration before, and then I listened to a sermon by John Piper, where he had stolen my illustration and he improved upon it. He had to, I guess he's listening to Wednesday night is all I can think. And he stole it and he like he made it better. So I'm gonna steal it back and yeah. use that that illustration better. Um, my, my wife's parents, my in-laws, live at the foothills of the Smoky Mountains. And so you can look out their front window and you can see the Smokies in front of you. And you can see mountain, if you've ever looked at mountain peaks, you can kind of see these. and They're kind of hills more like that, but you get the idea. You see these peaks. And when you, when you look at them at a great distance, they look like they're right next to each other. But what you find if you go backpacking, which I've been told by people that do such things (laughs) that are crazy, that if you hike up there, you get to the peak of one, and you you look, and and actually that other one is much further in the distance than you realize at first. So when you read the Old Testament, what you have to understand is two things. The terminology of the Old Testament prophecies is communicated in a way that the people in the Old Testament can understand it. Right? They don't understand the world you live in. Jesus makes that clear with even John the Baptist. They, the Old Testament prophets would have loved to live in your day. And they they, they didn't. They, do, they don't understand the world you live in. They understand the world they live in. So things are communicated in their terminology, but it, in a way that only God could have designed in the, in the Old Testament and its translation to the New. Is that all of those terms that made sense to them have now been updated to, in a sense that we can understand it? Right? So, Jerusalem and Zion now make sense to us, but in a slightly different way. The lights come on and we go, we understand that differently now. But we get what, G- what God was doing. He was teaching that lesson the whole time. And He was helping them to understand, even in an Old Testament way, you want Jerusalem to come down from heaven. You want that, okay? Because that's when God really dwells with his people, right? So, but, but what they didn't understand is the timing of it. So they, they understand the terminology in their terms, but they don't really understand it in your terms. They also understand the timing in their terms and not really your terms. So what we now know, with the lights being on, is that the mountain peaks of Christ's coming and his coming again are two, in two different places. And they're So far, 2,000 years apart, right? But the prophets are communicating them as one event. It's one thing. They're sitting right next to each other. The Messiah coming and forgiving sin and his establishing his kingdom forever where he dwells forever with his people, those are all the same thing. But when we get into the New Testament, we start to think, well, no, they're 2,000 years apart. But I think actually... Our understanding of Christ's coming should probably be a little bit more Old Testament and a little bit less modern church where we start to realize that what Christ accomplished in His inauguration when He first came and forgave His forgiveness of sin is actually much the same as what He's going to accomplish in His second coming. That right now, you dwell at peace with God. If you are in Christ... There is, therefore now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Wait, but condemnation for the bad things, right? No condemnation for those who are in Christ. So the message of salvation, the message of the gospel, is that you can have forgiveness of sin and you can be at peace with God. You're telling me for all of the things that I've ever done and ever will ever consider doing, all of those things, I can have forgiveness for that by trusting in Christ alone and repenting of my sins. Yes, it's exactly what I'm telling you. So then, there's no hostility between me and God? He holds no wrath for me whatsoever? Is that what you're telling me? That's exactly what I'm telling you. So the Messiah's ministry, His reign, all of the things that the Old Testament prophets are promising you will happen when the Messiah comes, are yours already. Yes! Do you understand that? Those those are already yours. Now, are they everybody's yet? Well, Well, no. Are they available to everybody? They're available to everybody. The gospel is being preached to everybody. And anyone can come and repent of their sins and find forgiveness in Christ. So, all of those things have been made available. The Messiah's ministry has begun and it's yours already. You already possess those things. You tracking with me? Okay. All right. So, what does he say then? He says, um, And I will pour out on the house of David. This is back in, uh, in Zechariah. He says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. So, that, so a spirit of grace and please for mercy, that I am going to pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So you're immediately thinking, if you're in Old Testament, physical city. Pour out Spirit. So that when they look upon me, when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. When will this happen? When will the prophecies of Zechariah come to fruition? He says, He says, When they look upon him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. Is this starting to make sense? A little bit more? Right? Okay. As one mourns only for a child and weep bitterly over him, as one weeps over a firstborn, on that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning of Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. Alright. So then Jesus and John, for these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another Scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Right? But, wait. So it's fulfilled then. Jesus has come, and he says, look, the Scripture has been fulfilled. The Scripture in Zechariah is fulfilled when I came and I died on the cross. Well, not totally. Totally. Revelation, behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. What's John referring to there? Same passage in Zechariah. It's fulfilled, but it's not complete yet. And those seem like the same thing, right? But it's not. not. It's still got more. There's still more to go. That doesn't mean that there's not more to go. It also became clear in the New Testament that many of the apocalyptic images of the Old Testament prophets are a result of the inauguration of the Messiah's kingdom rather than its consummation. And yet still others await final fulfillment at Jesus' return. So it's not as though everything's done. That's not what I'm saying. But it is to say, don't discount the first coming of, the, of Christ as a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. Questions? Go ahead. John says there is no temple. For the Lamb and the Father the temple. I think you want to make a statement, but you're asking questions. So why don't you make a statement? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So we can get into the imagery of the temple, but John tells us in Revelation when the city of Jerusalem comes down, there is no temple. Even though he describes a temple, he says there is no temple. So, Other questions? All right, let's go to the Lord and pray. Heavenly Father, I'm grateful for your word, grateful for what it means. I pray for our eyes to be open to it. I pray for our hearts to be submissive to it. For us to understand Christ as Lord, as Savior, as King, as the one who offers us grace, forgiveness, through repentance of sin, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, we'd love for you to visit. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 1030 and Wednesday nights at 615.